Well, I want to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles in the back, in the bookcase back there. Go back there and get you one. Uh, this is a free roam zone, so you can uh, get up and walk around. Nobody's going to laugh. Nobody's going to poke. You know, uh, grab you a Bible. If you need some coffee, grab some coffee. If you need to jog on the ramp, feel free to do it. And if you don't have a Bible, then take that one. Let it be your Bible. Or if you don't have a Bible that you can write in, take one of these. Uh, Jesus has told us that we could write in these. So you're free to do that. Uh, and the reason I want you to be able to write in your Bible or take notes, because you're missing it this morning if you don't have a pen in your hand, if you don't have a piece of paper that you're writing down, because we believe a couple of things here. We believe that truth is not something that is discovered. Uh, truth is not something you're going to get this morning because I'm a clever teacher or um, because I'm the best looking pastor in town. It's obvious, but that's not what we're going to get truth from. Truth comes from this, that the Holy Spirit brings revelation to truth. And uh, truth in my situation and often in my life, when God brings truth, it also often is a truth that he wants me to marinate in. He wants me to grow in. He wants me to contemplate and consider. It's not, uh, you know, like a latte where you get it, you drink it, you go on and forget about it. It's often something that God wants to work into my life. And so I would really encourage, if you're not bringing a piece of paper or a pen with you, start doing that or go back there and scavenge the back bookcase for a pen and write down what the Holy Spirit is bringing revelation to you about. What does he want you to know out of what we're teaching this morning? So we've been in 1 Corinthians and uh, we're kind of going through this series because we started this year talking about four significant questions that we wanted you guys to wrestle with. So we decided to go to a book uh, where Paul is writing to a church, much like a church here in Nashville, and he's addressing issues of that church, and he's asking them questions and giving them truth that he wants them to wrestle with, okay? So uh, Paul's writing this letter to this community of people that we've already discovered, boy, they are a mess. You know, they're divided because they're, follow, they're split up uh, based on who they're following, they're kind of man worshipers, you know. They look for the superstar preacher that's going to bring the goods to them, and they declare their, their loyalty to him. They're divided among each other on uh, how they view servanthood and a whole host of other things. But today it gets really juicy. <laughs> Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. You don't believe me, just hang on. Chapter 5, give me a page number if you're in a house Bible. Do you got that? Maggie, what you got? 793. All right. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Now, let's just stop right there. <laughs> okay. I've taken the Greek and I've studied the original language. We don't know what this means. Is he dating his stepmother or is he dating his mom? All we know is this, that uh, it's of a weird enough situation that not even, not even the Corinthians that aren't in the church have never heard of this. Now, you got to understand something about Corinth. Corinth was the city, if you had sexual deviancy, that's where you went. Matter of fact, uh, they coined the name, if you kind of operated outside the lines sexually, they called you a Corinthicizer. 
That's how bad it was. Now, if those people are looking at you and going, that's weird, you're, are you tracking with me? This is weird. And so this guy is dating his mother. It's safe to say if you're taking your mom to the prom, there's a problem. I cannot tell you how many jokes. Okay, I'm not going to go there. What would you be saying if you were in the privacy of your own house with your best friend? What joke would you say? Say that to yourself right now. That's hilarious, all right? Paul continues, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sanctified sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread, without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I am writing you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing that you may not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. (laughs) A lot of words there. And obviously, we're not going to be able to unpack all of what this chapter is talking about. But uh, let's try to hit some highlights. What would God have for us out of this? Well, let's start with the simplest first. Paul is calling the people in the church in Corinth to holy living. He's saying that when it comes to holy living, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. He's saying that we can definitely say there are right things and there are wrong things. And we're a people that have been called to live holiness, living to the right things that God has for us. So what does the word holy mean? You know, we find in the Old Testament, this word is kind of birthed into our world, holy. It's really talking about holy means literally to be set apart. And we know that God is holy because God created all things. God is not a part of creation. In fact, all of creation was created by God apart from God. God is not in the rocks. God is not in the sky. God is not a pantheon God who exists in everything that we breathe and every person. We don't believe that. We believe that God is distinctly separate from creation. And God created creation. But he was apart from creation. And not just apart from creation, but he is pure, without flaw, without blemish, perfect in every way. Now what's significant about that is if God is the only thing that's holy, 
If God is the only thing that is set apart that is other than everything that we know, okay? Then it's powerful when this other God, when this holy God says in Hebrews chapter 10 that he makes us holy. Meaning the God who is separate reaches into the world that is not holy, grabs a hold of me and sets me apart and makes me holy. Pretty significant. He does that through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through his resurrection. Now the reason that's significant in understanding this is because I don't live a holy life to become holy. This is one of those things we highlight and underline. I don't live the right life or a holy life so that I can be holy. I live a right life and a holy life because I am holy. Because I've already been set apart. That's why it says in verse 7, he's using this analogy from the Old Testament and from Passover about yeast and how it affects everything. And he says that, so in, in the Old Testament, when they were talking about the Passover, yeast kind of represented wickedness and they wanted to get all the wickedness out before they started the great journey of being set free from slavery. He says in verse 7, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. You see what he's saying there? Is don't get rid of the yeast so that you can become unleavened. Get rid of the yeast because you are already unleavened. You're already holy. Let me try to explain what this really means because I don't know about you, but I often live with this vague feeling that although I may know that God has made me holy through Jesus Christ, I don't feel holy. This week, uh, I was driving down Belmont Boulevard, and if any of you here own a Dodge Ram pickup truck that's dark blue and you read about, you ride about six inches off my bumper on Thursday on Belmont Boulevard, I am holier than I appeared at that moment. I did not feel holy. I wanted to introduce that guy to Jesus in a way that had nothing to do with evangelism. Do <laughs> you ever have those moments where, where you just feel like, I, I don't know what just happened, you know? And so we wrestle with, you know, you get out of the car, and okay, so I beat the guy up, and you know, and police, and there were photographs. No, I didn't do that. But you know, we have these moments where we say something to somebody that we love, or we hurt somebody that we care about, or we do something that we go, wow, that's so out of character of me. And then we live with this vague feeling of, well, was that really out of character for me? Like, who am I really? Am I the person that I want you to believe that I am? Or am I the person that does this other stuff? And so we live with this vague feeling that makes it difficult for us to believe that Christ, through his death and resurrection, and through me embracing that through repentance and finding that I have been made new, the old is gone, the new has come, that God has made me holy. And that my holy life is actually me bringing what's already true on the inside to the outside, through my mouth, through my hands, through my eyes, through my ears, through my words, through my attitudes, through the things that I love and the things that I hate. That I am birthing a reality that's already going on inside of me. It's, uh, maybe you've seen the King's Speech. Beautiful movie about uh, the guy who has a speech impediment and stutters. True story. And uh, he was wrestling with it and managing it. And then the worst possible thing happened for him 
and that was that he actually became king. His brother was slated to become king. And there's a scene in the movie where uh, he's at his desk late at night, and he's looking over some paperwork, and then he picks up the plans for the coronation, where he has to publicly speak, and he begins to weep. If you haven't seen it, it's worth seeing. If you have seen it, do you remember this? Do you remember what he said to his wife? He turns to her and he says, this is possibly the biggest mistake of my life. And then he says these words, I am not a king. I'm a naval officer. And then he punctuated it with this line. It is the only thing I know about. You remember that? And his wife has some great words that I encourage you to go back and find if you don't remember them. But the rest of the movie was him discovering he was a king. And the rest of the movie was about him finding what? His voice. Finding his voice. And when we, as God's people, begin to truly believe that we've been made holy because of the righteousness of Christ and what he brought us through the cross, when I begin to live a holy life, I, like Bertie, am finding my voice. I'm stepping into the rhythm that God has created for me. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Anybody that hears that as a burden, anybody that hears that as God just putting the fist down on me, if you love me, you will obey me, doesn't understand what it means to already been made holy and being called now to live in the rhythm of what God has made us for. Finding our voice. And the first step in our voice is to learn the rhythm of God. Now, you know, we've used this example before, but you can imagine if, if I had a kid up here on the stage who grew up in the darkest, ugliest, horrific orphanage you could ever possibly imagine, where every day was a fight for survival, you know, Oliver Twist kind of world. And every day was a day of fighting hunger and every day was a fight for just trying to stay alive, realizing you can't trust anybody. Everybody's gonna turn against you. Even your closest friends aren't for you because everybody else is for themselves. And that child was adopted into a home of a wealthy husband and wife who were benevolent and loving. Do you think that there would be a season of transition from this world to this world? This is where we do community participation. Yes, thank you. All right. I love somebody in the back going, no, I don't get it. Okay, we'll talk later. So here's the thing is that when this orphan is being brought out of what the scriptures call the kingdom of darkness and brought into the home of a benevolent father who loves him and wants to give him all things, which God calls in scripture the kingdom of light, when we're brought into this kingdom of light, the father over here is saying, look, you can't live like you lived when you were an orphan. Well, you can, but if you do, you're losing out on the rhythm of this home. You're losing out on the voice of this home. You don't have to go down in the kitchen at midnight and raid the refrigerator and store everything up under your bed so that nobody's gonna steal it from you. That's the rhythm of the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of light is the refrigerator's open to you 24 seven, it's all yours. And so when God's calling me into holy living, God's not trying to constrain me. 
God's not trying to take away my freedom. He's not trying to say, you know, you're just going to become this mindless robot for the kingdom of God, Jesus, 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 Christian, you know? God is saying, I'm calling you out of what you weren't made for. This was broke. And I'm calling you into what you were made for, that we find our voice. How do we do that? Well, (laughs) there's a beautiful thing about the Lord doesn't leave us to guess on that. He doesn't say, well, good luck, you know? That sounds so beautiful, you know? Lord, you're beautiful, your rhythm, you know, your voice. Good luck. Well, he doesn't do that. He gives us the word. You know, what's amazing about this word is it's not only we believe the infallible word of God, it's the trustworthy word of God. God is the one who made the decision about what you needed, what I needed for revelation about him, and he put it here. This was put together by him. This was his idea. He filled it with what we needed to understand him. Does it tell us everything about God? No. Are there a lot of mysterious things in here? Yes. Are there mysteries in here? Yes. But does it reveal to us what God wants us to know about him so that we can learn our voice? Yes. Does it give us everything we need to know about the redemption that he's brought to us through Jesus Christ so that we can learn his rhythm? Yes. Look in, uh, well, you can write this down. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it specifically talks about this word. And it says, all scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for, look at this, teaching. See? New house, new kingdom, kingdom of light, teaching, rebuking, No, 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 that's not the way to do it. Do it this way. Stop that. Start this. That's not the rhythm of this house. You don't have to steal food from the refrigerator. You know, the food's always going to be there. Correcting. Training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why when we are longing to understand the beauty of God, like we were just singing about in the song, that we turn to his word. You know, David said in Psalm 119, in verse 11, he said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. And what is he saying there? He said, I don't want to live out of my false voice. Birdie at the table. I don't want to live believing that all I am is a naval officer. I want to, I want to grow into what you have made me to be. So I learn my true voice and I hide your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. So let's go back to the passage, 1 Corinthians 5, because Paul's greatest concern in most of the words that he has are not for this guy who's dating his mom, you know, who he said, this is wrong. It's for the community because he's really pressing into a couple things that he's heard about them. In verse 2, It says you're proud. And in verse six, it says you're boasting. Now let's just stop and just, let's just consider this for a minute. Uh, They're proud of this. Hey, if you come to Midtown, I mean, we got guys there dating their moms. That's awesome. Like, think about that. Does that strike you as odd? What's going on here? Well, it doesn't tell us, but uh, 
if this was happening in our culture today, let me take some liberty here and maybe give some insight how we can go from this, I want to live my life to the rhythm and voice of God's holiness that's already living inside of me and shining me and I want that to come out of my life to this. You know, one of the ways that we could get there is we could really embrace a world philosophy of life such as who's to say what's wrong? I mean, seriously. I mean, who's to say what's right and what's wrong? Because, hey, what's right for you? That may not be right for me. But if that's right for you, hey, who am I to say that's not right for you, right? Because let's be honest, and this is the world that we live in, truth really is relative. Something's only true in the context of where it is relative. But the truth that you say is true for you may not be true for the people over in Japan right now. And it may not be true for the person that's sitting right next to you. That we can't really say that what's true for me is true for all people at all time. Because in essence, there is no absolute truth. And one of the ways that the world that we live in will even bring that into the church is to say stuff like this. Have you ever heard this? The Bible. <laughs> Dude, you can make this book say anything you want it to say. You ever heard that? And if we can make it say whatever it is that we want it to say, then in essence, it really doesn't say anything. So how can I let this have any authority in my life? How can I let anything that you say authority in my life. Thank you. Aaron and I talked about that earlier about having times where this would go out for dramatic pause. Did it work? Yes, people in the back? No? Okay. You know, what happens, and, and it, it feels like a warm uh, snuggie, you know, is I got my own little world here. And in my own little world, there are certain things that exist. And if you'll let those things exist in my own little world, guess what? I'll let them exist in yours too. And here's what I'm going to let exist in your world. You determine what's good for you. You determine what's true for you. You determine what works for you. And you determine how much of this you will let into your world and how much of this you won't let into your world. And better yet, we'll let you be the filter as to what this really says so that you can create your own little cocoon of your own little kingdom and your own little world. I mean, it kind of feels good. I mean, that kind of seems nice. You know, another way that we can get there is not just the world. We can step into the church. The church can get there really easily. We can say things like, uh, hey, we are covered by grace. And Jesus, he died on the cross. He forgave us all our sins. And they're all gone as far as the, the east is from the west. He's thrown them as far away that we're completely covered, that we can't out God's grace, right? I mean, and look how amazing we are when we live in grace. Look how free we are when we live in grace. Yeah, I'm not sure, sure that that's holy living, but I'm under the cloud of grace, man. I am forgiven. 
And so we let go of the rhythm and the voice and we think that grace now gives me the permission to go back to the kingdom of darkness and now I can go back and indulge in all the things back over here because I'm really covered by grace. So I get to keep my namesake. Hey, I belong to the Lord, man. I'm the son of the wealthy landowner. But at the same time, I can go back here to the kingdom of darkness and I can revel in all the darkness. I don't know about you, but I love that. I do. I'm honest with you. Isn't that, wouldn't that be great? I mean, to have just the, the free ticket to ride. I mean, come on, God's forgiven you. And you can imagine a community that's so engulfed in this whole idea of grace that even the grossest of sins, they look at it and go, oh, wow, you know what? We love messy people. And we've got the messiest people in the city here. We take pride in that. We boast in that. Well, one other thing indulge me here is not just the world has its philosophy of you determine your own truth. And we don't also find in the church that Jesus forgives everything and so live however you want. But we also find, and, and this is an interesting one because we live in an era where spirituality is prevalent everywhere. And in spirituality, this is uh, what I hear. True love, true love, accepts people just the way they are. That the whole Bible and every religion is about love. That they're all about love. And even in the Bible, we find that, you know, the two commandments, love the Lord your God um, and also love others. And if God is accepting and if God is about love, then God doesn't really want to change anybody. God just wants to embrace and give the world a big hug. And the Bible is all about this. So, and catch this leap, if God is about love and life is about love, then if you love, it justifies everything you do. In other words, if that mother and that son really love each other that way, who are we not to embrace that? It does feel good because it feels like there's no conflict there. It feels like that we have complete tolerance. It feels like we have complete acceptance. But Paul is saying to us very clearly and to these people here, it may seem safe, but it's a, it's a false safe. Meaning this, go to verse eight. Chapter five, verse eight. Therefore, He's talking about, you know, keeping the festivals, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast. He says, now we need to celebrate with the bread of sincerity and truth. And what does he mean by that? Sincerity and truth. Uh, The word sincerity actually means to shine a light. You know, for a number of years, uh, a group of us gathered our boys together and during spring break, we would travel down below Daytona to a place called Mosquito Lagoon. And it's a stretch of islands that you can rent your own island and go camp on it for the week. So we're, we're in canoes, you know, Lewis and Clark in it, you know, with all our tents and, you know, our big screen TVs and stuff in the canoes and going out to, no, we didn't take that stuff, you know, but we're, you know, backpacks, you know, we got, you know, those hats you wear on safaris that sit in your closet and you never wear them anywhere else, you know. Like there's only a couple of places that hat is acceptable to wear and it's where nobody is, you know? 
And so we're going out, and it takes us like two hours to get to our island, and we're setting up hammocks and tents and crazy stories, uh, Dave fuck raccoons and stuff. And so here's always the funniest moment is when we, when we leave the island after our week on the island. Now, there's no running water, okay? Uh, no bathrooms, uh, just an island just full of fishing and just guys and fires, you know, you know, and we're giving each other Indian names and stuff and dancing and screaming at the moon, you know, and all that kind of crazy stuff, which was fun. Um, We leave the island, we get back to the nature center, and uh, one of the most refreshing things to do after you've been out in the wilderness for a week is to go to a real bathroom. And what do you do when you walk into the bathroom? What, what would you do? What would be the first thing that you would do if you walk into the bathroom? Look in the mirror, you know? Because you're looking at everybody else all week long and you're going, boy, they are really letting themselves go. You don't have a mirror. And then you look in the mirror and there's no hiding it. Good Lord, I'm a caveman, you know? That's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the strange bathroom mirror in a restroom in a small, no, I'm joking. He's talking about the sincerity of shedding light on what is really true. And what he's saying there is really something profound and simple is that God's not calling you to ignore your heart. He's not calling you to bypass what's going on inside of you. He's not calling you that when you're living in this world and you're being transformed to this world, that you're to ignore the struggles and the pains and the things that you're feeling and the draws to come back to this place, to live in your false voice. He's not saying that. He's saying shine a light on all of it. Shine a light on all of it. Stand in front of the mirror and see what the reality really is. But when you do that, don't stop there. Don't let that define for you reality. Let it be the starting place where you bring truth to that reality. See, the powerful thing about sincerity and truth is when I practice the presence of God, it pushes me into practicing the presence of people. In other words, the closer I get to God, the more I love him with all my heart, my soul, my strength, my might, the more it pushes me to love my neighbor as myself. But something crazy happens when I begin to love God. When I really begin to experience living out of this voice, I start to see some things about my old nature, about this orphan nature. I love how Scott Peck put it. He says, He would argue that we are all born narcissists and that learning to grow out of our narcissism is at the heart of the spiritual journey. This world here is a narcissistic world that's all about me. And learning to grow into my holiness is learning to grow out of myself. Actually, St. Augustine put it this way when he defined sin as the state of being caved in on yourself. The more I grow in my holiness, the more it grows me out of me and more it grows me into you. So how do we do that? 
how do we live out a community in that way to where we don't accept false truth, that we shine the sincere life of truth, light of truth on each other and bring truth to each other's hearts? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to forsake false peacemaking. We really have to forsake the false journey of stepping into each other's journey. I mean, you can imagine these people, they're looking at this guy, his father's dead, and now he's in this relationship that's weird, okay, with his mother. And it would be easy to say he's had enough pain. We can't press into that and hold him accountable for this crazy thing that he's doing. We just need to let it play itself out. Let's just leave him alone and just see how it works out. Peter Scazzarzo in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he says this, the problem with this scenario of just letting it play itself out is that the way of true peace will never come through pretending what is wrong is right. True peacemakers love God, they love others, and love themselves enough to disrupt the false peace. Why? He says, because you can't have true peace of Christ's kingdom with lies and pretense. They must be exposed to the light of sincerity and replaced with the truth. This is the mature, loving thing to do. Isn't that crazy? That the mature thing for us to do when we're living out of our sonship or our daughtership and the new kingdom where we're bringing holiness that exists within us to the surface of our lives is that we shine sincerity on the lives of those around us as well as ourselves and bring truth to it. Jesus did it all the time. He was always challenging religious leaders, his disciples. Remember when he started knocking over tables in the temple? What was he doing? He was disrupting the false peace. So here's a couple things I want you to grab a hold of. One, as believers, we have the right and responsibility to rescue each other from caving in on ourselves. Two, when you do that, you better realize you're walking on holy ground. (laughs) When you step into somebody else's journey that you love and you say, I want to bring some light and I want to speak some truth, you better come with Matthew chapter 5 in humility, in poverty of spirit, in meekness, in purity of heart, and loaded with mercy because you really are on holy ground. Have you ever been part of an intervention? Maybe you've been the recipient of an intervention or maybe you've been one that's helped put one together. Let me tell you one of the key things about an intervention is one, you have to expose what's going on. You also have to expose the consequence of what that behavior is doing to the family system in which that intervention is coming to light. And three, you have to bring consequences uh, if they refuse to get help. In other words, it's a family system that's saying, we're going to put our foot down. This has got to stop. And it's got to stop because this is killing you. You're caving in on yourself. And as you cave in on yourself, you're caving in on the rest of us. And us being affected by the sin that you're unwilling to deal with in your own life is forcing us to have to deal with stuff that we shouldn't have to deal with. And they expose the pain of that. But then they bring consequences. They don't say things like, okay, we're going to take away, you know, your Panera bonus card. You know, no more Starbucks for you today. You know, none of that. I mean, it's usually pretty serious stuff. Why? Because they're fighting for somebody's life. 
They're fighting for that person's voice. They're fighting to bring them out of the insanity of their narcissistic world, which drug addiction and alcohol or whatever addiction they may have had has drawn them deeper and deeper and deeper into isolation to where they're wounding the people around them and killing themselves. And when you do an intervention, you're fighting for somebody's life. That's holy ground, isn't it? It's serious. So when we fight for each other, we realize that we come in fighting for something that is incredibly serious, something that we love, and that's each other, that we're fighting that we wouldn't cave in on ourselves or live narcissistic lives, but we're calling each other to live in the place that God's called us to as sons and daughters. I have a good friend of mine. We've been friends for, gee, I bet it's almost 20 years now. And we have one of those kind of friendships to where maybe you have one of these kind of friendships where there, there are no real boundaries. Uh, and I mean that in a healthy way, not in an unhealthy way, because some of you have read Townsend, I know. All right, boundaries are good. But what I'm talking about is he can really ask any question about anything and he hears everything. I mean, he kind of, he has the permission to kind of travel through the back corners of the house of my heart and open closets that haven't been open in a long time and dig through all the rubble and go, ooh, what is that, you know? And uh, so he has the freedom to do all that. Maybe you have a friend like that, that you really can say anything to them and they're not going to hang up. That you can say, this is what happened and they're not going to walk out and go, that's it, I'm through. You know, the kind of person that has seen it all with you and when you share more, they actually lean in and go, thank you for sharing that. You have a friend like that? If you don't, you really ought to go get one. I'm telling you, they're precious. Here's what this friend does with me. After we get through talking, and we, you know, sometimes we have those, you know, tear fest. You know, just this is what's going on in times of repentance and, and really calling each other out and saying hard things to each other. Like, dude, have you lost your mind? Yes, I have. Okay? Then let me call you to sanity. He has the permission to do that with me. After all that hard talks, after every conversation, do you know what the last question he asked me before we get off the phone is? This, I swear to you, the very last question he asked me before we get off the phone, he'll go, hey, bro, I love you. And I know it's coming. And I go, I love you too. Go ahead and ask. And he says, have you lied to me today? Why would he ask that? Dude, I just bear, I just, I'm bearing my soul to you. I'm taking you to places that few people ever get to go. And yet he still has the courage to look at me and go, I know how narcissistic you can be because I know how narcissistic I can be. And I know what a gravitational pull it is to walk away from the light and come back to being an orphan. And because he knows it that powerfully, he knows that I need him to look into my life and go, are you lying to me? Does that sound cruel to you? When we shine the light of sincerity on each other, when through mercy and love and purity of heart we call each other to truth, we're calling each other to the holiness that has been birthed within us through Jesus Christ so that we can find our voice, that we can live to the rhythm of God, that we can know what we're here for. So let me close with this. What would this look like here? Well, the first thing is, where is the love of Christ 
calling you to find your voice this morning. In other words, is there, are there areas in your life that you're living like an orphan that God is saying, no, 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 you got to put that down. If Jesus came to you this morning and he said, if you love me, you would keep my commandments. Are there commandments that you're saying to Jesus, I can't follow you there? Where do you need to walk in obedience and repentance this morning? And then the second question I have for you is, where is he calling you to find your voice with each other? Have you been silent with a friend? Has the time come for you in grace and mercy to step into a friend's life and say, we got to talk? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you weren't content to leave us in the kingdom of darkness. <laughs> thank you, Lord, that you really are calling us not into the kingdom of light. You've brought us into the kingdom of your light through your son, Jesus Christ. But how do we live as kids in that kingdom now? How do we let your light shine into our lives and in the darkness of our own hearts? How do we learn, Lord, how to really align our lives to your rhythm and to the obedience of following you? To find that voice that you've already given us, Lord. Help us with that, Lord, I pray. As this morning... Lord, as you press into the people in this room and into my own heart, Lord, where we, have, where we have said no and we've turned our back on you and we've gone back to this caving in on ourselves, set us free from that, Father. I pray, Father, that if you've put us in a relationship where we need to give words to someone else, Lord, would you let us love them enough? Would you let us care enough to kind of walk into that dangerous, unsafe place of saying, no, we're in community together. And I need to speak. Lead us in those things, Father. Give us your grace in them. In Christ's name, amen.